This evening's scripture is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For this is the way that God loved the world. He gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good evening. I'm Pastor Brooks. I'll be bringing you uh, the message tonight as we are in message number two in our series, Searching for Answers, Encounters with Jesus. This, this sermon series is inspired by a book uh, by Tim Keller, which is uh, titled Encounters with Jesus. We're adding some of the encounters that Tim Keller does not include, and we're not covering everything that's in that book. But the, so it's not a chapter by chapter covering, but the premise is, is similar. What you have is in all of these encounters that we're going to be looking at is, is different people from all sorts of different walks of life, and each time Jesus encounters one of them, they come with a specific question. And they come with a question that only Jesus can answer. Now, why is that pertinent? Well, for one, all of us have the same issues and the same questions that all of these individuals have that we're going to be seeing in Scripture. And Jesus is the solution. And he's the answer to all of our questions, whether we know that or not. And, and just as important, all of these people that you go to school with and you work with and that you, you, you live life with in the community that don't know Christ, they're asking the same questions. These questions are not unique to Christians. These are questions that every human being possesses or that they go through or that they ask themselves. So last week, we looked at the question, uh, where can I find truth? With Nathaniel, his brother introduces him to Jesus. I found the one, the, the Messiah, the one the prophets spoke of. And, and, and Nathaniel's response is, can anything good can anything good come from Nazareth? So he leads with the question. It's, it's right there. He's skeptical. He's skeptical. I don't know that I can trust somebody from the sticks. I don't know that I can trust this person because 
I don't think the Messiah is from. So it's a question of where is truth? What is truth? Who can I trust? Tonight's text is a little bit different. It's different in the sense that there's no obvious question. So let's take a look at the scriptures here. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. He came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God was truly with him. Okay, stop. What's the question? That's not a question. That's a statement. That's a statement. But look at the next verse. Jesus answered him. Where's the question? You see, the difference between Jesus and all of us is that when you and I converse or you're speaking with someone, you have to listen to them. You have to draw out. They have to articulate what it is that is on their heart. Not so with Jesus. Jesus knows what is in the heart of every man, what is in the heart of every woman, what is in the heart of every human being before they move their lips. He knows what Nicodemus isn't asking but needs to know. So what does Jesus say? How does he answer this non-question? He answers the non-question with, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. So the unspoken question is a question of acceptance. The question that Nicodemus didn't ask, but Jesus is answering is, how do I know I'm good enough? How do I know that I, I'm speaking as if I'm Nicodemus, a religious leader, someone who is very moral, who is, who is a part of the religious community, a leader, how do I know, how do I know that what I know about God, what I know about the scriptures, how do I know that I'm good enough? And Jesus says, you're not. You're not. So here's three different paths that people take. This is, this is what we're going to look at. And, and some of this is in the text. Points one and three are definitely in the text. Number two I'm adding because it's culturally relevant for our day. There's three paths that people take. It doesn't matter if you are uh, religious, you grew up in a religious home, or you grew up in a home where your parents didn't value the Scriptures. They didn't take you to church, like mine. Either way, either way, all human beings will take one of three paths to gain acceptance. They will take the traditional religious path. They'll take a secular religious path. Now, some of you are thinking that those secular and religious don't make sense in the same, in the same phrase. Just roll with it here. We'll, we'll, I'll, I'll show you why that's, this is true. There's the traditional religion. There's the secular path. And then there's the way of the cross, the gospel. Those are the three different paths that people can take to gain acceptance. And only one of them is viable. Only one of them is viable. So let's open up the word. John chapter 3. Let's seek the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to guide us in truth so that he'll speak to us. Father, we recognize that your word is truth. And Father, we come to you and we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Apart from the spirit, we can do nothing, let alone read or understand what you have here in this passage uh, for us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would guide us into truth. We pray that you would show us what it means to be loved, to be accepted by you. Father, for that person here who does not yet know you, but maybe is religious, I pray that you would open their eyes and show them their need of you. For that person, Lord, who does know you, but they're dry and they're, they're just 
apathetic in their faith, I pray that you would bring them to life, that you would awaken them. And Lord, I pray that for all of us, you would encourage and strengthen our faith. For the sake of Christ's exaltation, may he increase, may we decrease. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, let's get to the text here. Traditional religion. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. This is a significant statement. This tells us what kind of religious person he was. Pharisees were a sect within Judaism. Now, this particular sect of Judaism was very, very conservative. They believed that the Old Testament was, in fact, the Word of God. They believed in miracles. They believed in angels. They believed in demons. They believed in the future resurrection of the dead. When they read the Old Testament, they read it literally. They were the conservative evangelicals of their day, if you will, just to parallel. So, and so he is a Pharisee. That's, that's his sect. That's his religious affiliation. But keep reading. Named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he's not just in the crowd. He's not just in the sect. He's not just a believer in the Old Testament. He's a leader. He's a teacher. He's respected. So this guy knows the word. He knows the Old Testament inside and out. He understands the law. He believes he's a part of the in-accepted group. That's who he is. That's who he is. And he says, this man came to Jesus at night, and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. He's primarily concerned with, who are you, Jesus? We, he says, we. Who is the we? The we are the Pharisees. They're watching Jesus. They're troubled by some of the things that he's saying, but they're intrigued by the things he's doing. They know intuitively that your average Joe just doesn't roll into town and raise people from the dead, uh, heal the blind, give them sight, and so forth and so on. They know he's from God, but they're troubled. They're troubled by what he's saying. He comes at night. Why does he come at night? The text doesn't say, but we can read into it that because he's a Pharisee, coming in the day and having this open dialogue would peg him as someone who's just a little too interested in Jesus because most of the other Pharisees are opposed to Jesus. So that's who he is. That's who he is. He's religious. He represents traditional religion. Now, all religion, uh, the, the bottom part here, religion, what man does to gain acceptance from God. That's not in the Bible. I added that. That's just a tag to just kind of flag for our minds. When we're talking about religion, what are we thinking of? We're thinking of something. It's a system. It's a system by which man does good things and avoids bad things so that they can gain acceptance before God. In this case, we're talking about Judaism. But if you look throughout the last couple thousand years, Christianity, and you look at Christianity, many people view Christianity the same way. It's what you do. It's what you do to gain acceptance with God. And with Islam, you do certain things to gain acceptance from Allah. With Hinduism, there's millions of gods, but still there's, there's, a, there's a path. There's things you do. There's things you shouldn't do. Avoid bad karma. With Buddhism, which doesn't even technically have a god, yet there's things you do and there's things you don't do. Do these things and you will gain acceptance. That's traditional religion. Now before we get back into the text, let's just take a look at the problems with traditional religion. First of all, what does traditional religion produce? First of all, it produces legalism. What is legalism? So the Pharisees 
were infamous for making more laws than the Scriptures actually had so they could build a fence of laws around the Bible so you couldn't get to break the law because there's other laws. So they added laws on top of laws. And the essence of legalism is, here's a law. If you can keep it, you'll be righteous. So your righteousness, your acceptance is based not upon faith, but it's based upon law-keeping. It's based upon doing good work. So that's the essence of legalism. Now what does that lead to? It leads to pride. Why? Because if I have a set of commandments, we have a set of commandments, a list of rules that we can keep to gain acceptance with God, and that's the basis of our acceptance, that means that if we keep those, we are good. Now for those that don't keep those, what are they? They're bad. So what does that make me? Better than them. Now, has anyone noticed that this is kind of a thing with religious groups? We have the truth. They lack the truth. We follow God. They don't follow God. We're better. Luke chapter 18 spells this out perfectly in the story of, of the Pharisee who goes before God. It's the comparison of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee comes into the temple and he prays. What does he pray? He said, God, I just want to thank you. I just want to thank you that I am not like these other men, like this adulterer or this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I have. He's literally thanking God for how awesome he is. This is the essence of pride and it is the child of legalism. You can't help but think you're better than people if you think that your law-keeping is what makes you good. And this is, Christianity does not have a corner on this pride. This, this is all religions, all traditional religions. So there is legalism. There's pride. There's also hypocrisy. Of course, everybody knows this. These individuals who think that they're better because they have the law and they keep the law, they don't actually keep the law. They might be able to do the external things, the tithing, the, uh, the fasting, but they can't change the internal workings of their heart. The lust, the pride, the greed, the malice, the jealousy, all of those things are still swirling inside and none of these laws and none of these law keepings actually do this. And then, then they do step over the line and they do commit these sins and it's like they're not any different than anybody else. Hypocrisy. And the last thing it leads to is oppression. Oppression. When you believe that you are better than someone, when you believe that you have the truth and you have the law and others don't have it and you're good because you keep it and other people are bad because they don't, then, then groups of people begin to systematically oppress those who are different from them. This is just history. You see it in Christianity. You saw it in Judaism. You see it in Islam. I got to know a Navy SEAL uh, about four or five years ago retired Navy SEAL. He was here at the university getting his master's in the business college. And we got to know one another and I started sharing my faith and shared my testimony. We went out for lunch and, and I was just telling him about Christ, telling him about my faith. And he said, I'm not interested at all in religion. I said, well, why not? It's because for 16 years I was a Navy SEAL. I've been all over the world hunting down, killing or capturing the worst people on the planet. And they are all religious. Now in his context, over the last 16 years, who is he encountering? The Taliban and Al-Qaeda. 
legalistic, proud, hypocrites, and oppressive. Now, I'm not saying that all of us that come from traditional religious homes are the equivalent of Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. But certainly where two or three are gathered, there's hypocrisy and pride. That's just the way it is. And I think we all know this. We all know this. So what does it get us? What does traditional religious get us? Nothing. Oh, no, it does. It gets us legalism, pride, and hypocrisy, and oppression. But other than that, nothing. It doesn't get us what we think it will. Look back to the text. Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Can't see it. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, either Nicodemus doesn't know this is a metaphor, or he knows it's a metaphor and he doesn't understand how it could possibly be true. I'm going with the latter. Nicodemus is not a stupid man. He is intelligent. He's a leader. He's a teacher. He knows Jesus is not speaking literally, but yet even the metaphor doesn't make sense to him. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can I become new? How can I start over? How can I become a totally new person out of the chute? I, I, I don't know how old Nicodemus is, but he's not necessarily young. How? How do you go back in time? How do you start over? It's not possible. Jesus doubles down. Jesus doubles down. Verse 5. He answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again of water, unless you're washed, unless you're cleansed, and of the Spirit, unless you are reborn, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can't see it, and you can't enter. You're not accepted. You're not good enough, Nick. You're, you're on the outside looking in, and you can't even see the entrance, let alone enter it. You're not good enough. You're not. I mean, think about who he's talking to here. He's talking to one of the rulers of the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continually says, you've heard it was said this, let me tell you this. You've heard this said, let me tell you this. You've heard it was said not to murder, I tell you not to be angry. You tell, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, I say don't look at a woman lustfully. So he goes to the heart of the law and then he sums it all up with this. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the problem. Just a quick show of hands. How many perfect people do we have in the room? No one ever raises their hand when I ask that question. Why? Because you're sane. Because you know that that's absurd to actually think that you would be perfect. And what does Jesus say the standard is? Nothing less than perfection. If we are to be accepted by God, we must be perfectly holy. That's, we're sunk. Unless, of course, we're born again. That's his whole point. That's his whole point. No amount of law-keeping, no amount of rule-keeping will make us righteous. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says, through the law, no one will become righteous. Rather, rather, it's through the law that we become conscious of our sin. We become aware that we're not good. That we're not good. So the law shows us there's a problem. It can't cleanse us. It can only show us that we're not right. Now, so that's traditional religion. I hope that we've detonated anyone's hope of becoming right with God through any form of traditional religion, regardless of what flavor, what sect, what denomination, or what religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, 
Christianity, apart from the gospel, uh, Islam, Judaism, all of them, they're dead ends. They're dead ends. And for those of you who are secular or for those that know people that are secular, at this moment you're thinking, yes, stick it to the religious hypocrites. That's why I hate religion is because it oppresses people. It hinders people. It judges people. Okay, fair enough. But are you so sure as a secularist or those of you who know people that are secular, are you so sure they're not the same? Just wearing a different clerical robe. I submit to you that they are exactly the same. Exactly the same. Secular religion. Now, secular and then religion. It seems like they're, they shouldn't be together. But they, but they are. Let me hear, show, show you why. Everyone worships. You do not have to believe in God to be a worshiper. That's important to know. What is worship? Worship is the exaltation and the valuing of that which is supreme to you. Now, if you're a Christian or a Jew, you, you, you worship God. God is supreme. You're religious. You worship God. Now, all people worship. But with secular humanists, man is the measure of all things, not God. So man is the ultimate. So what is supreme is self. What is supreme is my wants, my desires. It's still worship. It's still worship. Now, the secular religious person is not concerned with earning the acceptance of God. That's not their gig. They're not trying to do good and be good and avoid bad so that they'll be accepted by God. They may not believe in God. Some of them might, but they might be agnostic and they're not ready to pin down on which God or who's the true God. But nonetheless, they're still working on acceptance. From whom? People. They're concerned with earning the acceptance of man in order to build a kingdom. They're not looking for the kingdom of God. They're not looking for entrance into God's kingdom. They're looking to build a human kingdom, a utopia that's free of suffering, free of problems where righteousness and justice rule. Kudos for, the, for what they want, but understand it's not different. It's only different in the object of worship. Does it make sense? Now, what does it lead to? Problems with secular religion, what it produces. I just copied and pasted from the last slide. It's the exact same thing. You say, well, Brooks, there's no laws. Oh, aren't there, though? There are sermons. There are homilies. There are all the things you get in church. All you have to do is turn on CNN, MSNBC, read The New Yorker, read The Atlantic. Just read secular publications. They're constantly telling us, telling our culture, this is what it means to be good. You do these things and you say these things and you don't do these things and you don't say these things. Is this true? And if you do these things, you will be accepted. Do these things and you shall live. Do them not and you shall be shunned. It leads to legalism. In other words, they too, just like the traditional religious person, believes that they become righteous because of what they do. They believe they're good people because they do things and they don't do other things. It leads to pride. It leads to pride. The secularist looks at the conservative religious person who believed the Bible is true and they think, they look down, they have a disdain. Oh, 
you are one of those people. You're one of those Christians that believes the Bible is true, that Jesus really rose from the dead, that all people who don't put their face in him are going to hell. You're homophobic. You're, you hate the climate. You want the world to burn. You think you're better than everyone else. Now, now, here's the irony. As they look at those who believe the Bible is true, they are feeling a sense of superiority to the very people that they think have a feeling of superiority. It's a form of pride. Charles Spurgeon said of the, of the Pharisee in the parable, not the parable, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the one who prayed and thanked God for how awesome he was, he said, we are never more like the Pharisee than when we thank God that we are not like the Pharisee. So when we identify the traditional religious person, regardless of their sect, regardless of the flavor of the month for religion, and we think, thank goodness I'm not as bad as those horrible bigots who don't know the truth, it's pride. And it's also hypocrisy. They too break the very creeds and the, and, the, and the codes that they have for morality. And it also leads to oppression. It also leads to oppression. I was talking with Josh Havman, our executive pastor, and he, he uh, encouraged me to read this very long article from the uh, periodical called The Atlantic, which is a secular, secular news periodical, a magazine. And, and this article is about the new... The New Puritans. And the article opens with, uh, with an excerpt of the book, The Scarlet Letter. Have you heard of The Scarlet Letter? Okay, The Scarlet Letter is, is writ, uh, written uh, by Nathaniel, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and it's about, it's about a, a, a community in New England during the, the reign of the Puritans. So very traditional, very religious, right? And there's a particular woman, and she, she has a sexual encounter with someone, and she becomes pregnant out of wedlock. And she refuses, she refuses to, to, uh, to reveal the identity of the father. So she's pregnant, and she has this child, and she is forced to wear a scarlet A for adultery on her person wherever she goes. And she is ruthlessly shunned, and she's mistreated by her religious, traditional religious community. Now, the father unbeknownst to the community, but known to the reader, is the righteous preacher of the gospel. So it's a sickening story. It's a sickening story. And this person is saying, she's talking about the new, the new Puritans. They're not traditional religious. They're secular people. She's talking about our culture. The new Puritans. The new Puritans there's legalism, there's pride, there's hypocrisy, and there is oppression. Just a couple examples from this article. Again, it's important that you know that this is not written by a religious person. This is a secular publication and a secular author. Here's one example. Daniel Elder, prize-winning composer and a political liberal, posted a statement on Instagram condemning arson in his hometown of Nashville where Black Lives Matter's protesters had set the courthouse on fire after the killing of George Floyd. He discovered that his publisher, after he posted this Instagram post that you shouldn't burn stuff down, after this, his publisher would no longer print his music and choirs would no longer sing them. He's done. He's got a scarlet A slapped on his chest. He's finished as a composer. He's done. Why? 
Because he said you shouldn't burn the courthouse down. Again, now he's not a traditional religious person. He's a, he's a political liberal. And that's neither here nor there, but you under, understand these are people turning on people in their own camps, just like the Puritans did. There's another example. A journalist says former journalist. One former journalist, notice former journalist, used to be a journalist but can't get a job any longer. One former journalist told me that his ex-colleagues, quote-unquote, don't want to endorse the process of mistake, apology, understanding, and forgiveness. They don't want to forgive. Instead, he said, they want to punish and purify. Punish and what? What was his last one? Punish and what? Purify. Purify, that's a religious term. To purify means to cleanse from sin. Do you understand what this person's saying? The secular religious want to purify the culture from all bad people. So they slap the scarlet letter on them and they shun them. Have you noticed this? It's every bit as oppressive and legalistic and, and, and full of hypocrisy as traditional religion is. The 20th century brought us the bloodiest century in the history of hu recorded human history. And, and first of all, I want to acknowledge that the previous 2,000 years, Christianity has a black stain for oppression and hypocrisy and pride and legalism. Yes? No one doubts this. However, that notwithstanding, the 20th century, over 100 million people more people were killed in that century alone than all the centuries combined up to that point. Not in the name of God, but in the name of godlessness. Not in times of war, but systematically eliminated by their own governments. Under Mao, under Stalin, under Pol Pot, and under Hitler. None of those individuals were following a god. They themselves elevated themselves into the status of God. So it's the same poison wrapped in a different wrapper. It doesn't lead to righteousness. It doesn't lead to acceptance. It just leads to legalism, pride, oppression, and hypocrisy. All right. Now that we're all depressed, what does it get you? Nothing. Same as the other. Nothing. Back to the text. Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus here is introducing a new way. It's a third path. It's not become good so society will accept you and you can build a human kingdom on earth, build another tower of Babel. Nor is it, here's the law of God, keep the law of God flawlessly, and then God will accept you. It's a third way. He says, no, it's not the law. You've got to be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and spirit gives birth to spirit. You have to be born of the spirit. You have to be made completely brand new. And you can't do it. Not one person here was the cause of their own birth. You didn't even have a say in the matter. You just came out, kicking and screaming. Bloody, bawling, unable to care for yourself. 
That's what Jesus is saying. You got to come into the, the kingdom of heaven the same way, born again of the Spirit. Nicodemus says, How can these things be? He's still not tracking. So he's frustrated. I don't get it. I don't get it. How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, if we speak of what we know, if we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And now he gives something that Nicodemus can hang his hat on. No one has ascended in heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have, uh, may have eternal life. Now, he goes back into Nicodemus' memory, and he grabs onto something that Nicodemus would, okay, something familiar. May not be familiar to us, but when he grew up in Sabbath school, like our Sunday school, he heard the story of Moses over and over and over again. How Moses had delivered God's people out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. But on the way to the promised land, there was that 40-year wandering in the wilderness, that detour, because they had no faith to enter the promised land. And as they wandered, they complained, they griped, they moaned, they, they griped against Moses, they griped against God. And so God allowed a plague of serpents to come into the camp, and people began to be bit left and right by these poisonous serpents, and they were dying. And so at this point of pain, they came to Moses and they said, oh, we've done it again, we've screwed up, we've sinned, we're so sorry, please intercede for us on our behalf for God, to God. And Moses comes before God, oh God, these stiff-necked people, please have mercy on them. So God says, okay, here's the plan. I want you to take this staff and I want you to fashion a bronze serpent or snake around it. You've seen the ambulances with the pole and the serpent that goes around it? That's where they get that. So go to the middle of the camp, get up to a high place, and lift that really high so everyone can see it. So whoever's been bit by a snake, if they want to be healed, all they have to do is look and live. That's it. Look and live. Here's the deal. Religion is do or die. Keep the law perfectly or die. The gospel is look and live. There is no do. It's done. Now, what do you suppose Nicodemus thought when Jesus said that? I totally get it. Not. Not even close. There's no way Nicodemus is tracking. Nicodemus is like, you are an enigma wrapped in an enigma. I have no idea what you're talking about. You go from being born again now to snakes on poles. Like that has any relevance. And I guess most likely that Nicodemus followed Jesus from a distance. We know in chapter 7, he, he somewhat defends Jesus when the Pharisees are starting to, to bring charges against him. He says, what are we going to condemn an innocent man without hearing him out? And so they immediately turn on him and say, oh, are you one of his followers? And Nicodemus is like, I'm just saying. Kind of backs off, uncommitted. But then in John chapter nine, 19, when they take Jesus down off of the cross... Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, comes to Pilate with Nicodemus. Give us the body. We'll prepare his body. He's no longer afraid to be seen as a follower of Christ. Why? I believe that when Jesus Christ 
was nailed to that cross and lifted up, everything that Nicodemus did not understand in John 3 became crystal clear. When Jesus was literally nailed to a pole in the same way that the serpent was lifted up, it clicked. In the same way my ancestors looked to the serpent and to live because of the poison that was flowing through them, their faith in simply noticing that there is the serpent nailed to the cross, in the same way he has taken my venom. He has become poison. He has embraced that. He has, he has swallowed the poison to its core on my behalf. And he looks, and now he follows. And now he follows. He's born into the kingdom. As an old man, he is reborn. Now, as we close tonight, it's a very, very simple question. Every single one of us, regardless of your religious affiliation, regardless of whether you consider yourself secular or a Christian or a nun, all of us will stand before the living God. And we will give an account. Some of you are like, well, I don't believe in God. doesn't matter. You will at that moment. You will someday stand before God. Are you good enough? Are you good enough? That depends solely on whether or not you have entered into a covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ, i.e., been born again. See, I don't like that term. doesn't matter. I'm not trying to be in your face, but it really does not matter if we like the term. Why? Because it's been co-opted by evangelicals. Just throw that aside. Jesus came up with a term. It's about being reborn. Not of flesh, but by the Spirit. How does a person become reborn? Simply by looking to the cross and recognizing He died there for me. He gave me His life so that I might live for Him. He gave me His Spirit. When you, when we confess, when we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Son of God, we become justified, Paul says in Romans 10. We are declared not guilty. We are declared righteous. Do you know what that means? It means we're new creations. We have been reborn. That's what it means. That's what it means. Here at Grace, um, we have something which is new. It's a card. It's in the back. By the, uh, by the offering box, and it's, it's simply labeled, I believe. I believe. It's important that we have this card because every so often someone comes and they're like, this is new to me. This is new to me. If this is new to you and you are not yet born again, but it is your desire to be born again, to come to Christ, to receive Him by grace through faith, I want to encourage you to grab this card and just simply check I trusted Jesus Christ to be the payment for my sins and accepted his righteousness as my own. Drop it in the offering box with your name, your email, or phone number, however you'd like us to contact you. Why does that matter? Well, literally, when someone is born, not again, but born, they can't walk yet. They need the care of a family. So if you are coming into a relationship with Christ for the first time, you cannot walk alone. You need your family. Even if you don't know your family. Newborns don't know their family either. It's okay. We are a family and we walk together. You might be more like Nicodemus though. You might be, I have questions about trusting Jesus. You're not ready, but you do have questions. 
check that. Drop it. Let us know so we can come alongside you, so others can come alongside you and help you take the next step in coming to know or asking the questions that you have so that you might come to know Jesus. One way or the other, traditional religion, it's a dead end. Secular religion, same dead end. The only hope that we have is the hope that we have through Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, conquered death, and rose again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you for loving us so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I thank you, Father, for this church family uh, where I came to know that truth, where I was born into the kingdom. And I thank you, Lord, that that gospel is still free today for each and every person here. For those who have yet to trust you, I pray that today would be the day that they put their faith in you. For those who have, I pray that today would be the day that we would be encouraged in our faith to take the next step in following you and to introduce others to come to know you as well. We pray this that Christ might be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen.